The following is a lesson in a series on life, liberty, and property brought to you by Republic Keepers and is presented and discussed by the Attorney General of the Republic State of Texas, Chaplain Raymond. This lesson discusses a book by the same name, Life, Liberty, and Property, written by Charles A. Wiseman, of which can be purchased at his website, seek-info.com, at amazon.com, or small bookstores such as Brave New Books in Austin, Texas. The ISBN number for this book is 0-966-8921-9-4. Life, Liberty, and Property is an educational series for sovereign souls on the dry land, and the information about fundamental law and the unwritten constitution cannot be utilized by those individuals that are domiciled in the District of Columbia. To understand your domicile status, please review the two constitutions, two domiciles document on republickeepers.com. We hope you enjoy this lesson on life, liberty, and property. Okay, I'm Chaplain Raymond. Uh, we're conducting the session on life, liberty, and property, a book by uh, Charles Wiseman, which is available. We have covered Chapter 2 part way, and we're continuing now Chapter 2, and we'll finish today to the end. We're at the it's a subheading in the chapter called American Law of the Land. We have been discussing the history of the law of the land from the past up through English history, and now we get to American Law of the Land. The basics of law and government in America were primarily derived from the English system, but the English common law had over the course of several centuries deviated from many fundamental principles and original precepts of the law. Now, what did that possibly mean? Well, as you know, before in our heading uh, presentation, we had the description of the European style of ecclesiastical sovereignty and American style. So in the ecclesiastical style, the law of the land didn't quite belong to the people. The people were subjects. So who were they talking about? Well, it was those with freeholds who were given a title of nobility. They had the freehold. America was a different story. When people stepped off the boat, they were all equal. So, in the founding of America, certain concepts of English law were not established, and new ones were added. All of these events formed the American common law, or fundamental law. This principle was recognized by Chief Justice Tillman of Pennsylvania when he said, Every country has its common law. Ours is composed partly of the common law of England and partly of our own usages. When our ancestors immigrated from England, they took with them such of the English principles as were convenient for the situation in which they were about to place themselves. It required time and experience to ascertain how much of the English law would be suitable to this country. 
by degrees as circumstances demanded, we adopted the English usages and were substitute others best suited for our wants, to at length, before the time of the revolution, we had formed a system of our own. The collection of the common law, the colonial that were originally established and followed in the early America became the law of the land of America. In other words, the events of our history had an effect formed the law of the land. So in inquiring into what was the law of the land, the Supreme Court of Tennessee in 1829 stated, the clause law of the land is a general and public law, equally binding upon every member of the community, period. Our colonial history will best teach its meaning. Our ancestors were taught it by being transported across the Atlantic for trial by the Boston Port Bill and other British legislation. The right to life, liberty, and property of every individual must stand or fall by the same rule of law. There's considerable evidence that the colonists considered the law of land as a reference to the common law. From the beginning, the colonists in America claimed the right to the protection of the great body of common law rights as their birthright Englishmen. Their claims were supported by the various royal charters and patents granted by the British Crown throughout the colonial period. But to better protect liberty and exact justice, they did not adopt all measures of the English law, as Judge Cooley has said. From the first, the colonists in America claimed the benefit and protection of the common law. In some particulars, however, the common law as then existing in England was not suited to their condition and circumstance in the new country. And those particulars they admitted as it was put into practice by them. Cooley then cites numerous cases in support of this proposition, including the Supreme U.S. Supreme Court of Van Ness versus Picard, which states, the common law of England is not to be taken in all respects to be that of America. Our ancestors brought with them its general principles and claimed it as their birthright. But they brought with them and adopted only that portion which was applicable to their condition. It is thus a mistake to say that some concept, law, or principle is not part of the common law because it was not so in England. In this land, we must look to the law which the early settlers adopted, that, that which they rejected, and that which they fought for in the Revolution. This is the law of the land in America. It is that law which is legally attached to the land by claim, adoption, usage, and application by our ancestors. However, the basis of this law was clearly the English common law.
as stated by Justice Story. We take it to be a clear principle that the common law in force at the immigration of our ancestors is deemed in the colonies, unless so far as it is inapplicable to their situation or repugnant to their other rights and privileges. Although our Anglo-American legal tradition, which we term the common law, is primarily an English institution, the differences between the two legal systems are obvious. In England, the common law was undergoing change, disuse, and distortion by the Crown and Parliament. But by the genius of Lord Coke and other jurists, the truer aspects of the common law were revived and remolded into vital pulsating principles and were passed on to the English colonies in this country. Coke's works were on the most prominently read literature in early America. It is clear that prior to the Revolutionary War, common law was in force in all the colonies. But while the colonists adopted the bulk of the revived English common law, they rejected that which was deemed repugnant to their rights. They also adopted, adopted other laws and principles which would foster free enterprise and private rights and which were more pursuant to the law of God. At the Revolution, many of the laws regarding the crown and feudal lords were abandoned. Thus, the English common law was purified in America because it was fortified with other good and godly precepts. This is the American common law, the law of the land. Due to this element of our common law, it has been said, we are therefore more essentially a common law country than England herself. Thus, that body of laws, customs, religions, rights, justice, and legal principles sanctioned and followed in America up to its official independence, is the common law in force generally throughout the United States. This is 17. There's a footnote here. This actually occurred with the Treaty of Paris, September 3rd, 1783, when Great Britain recognized the independence of the United States. The unwritten constitution of the United States. The concept of the organic law of the nation, or law of the land, is in effect the unwritten constitution of the nation. It is the lex non scripta, or unwritten law, sometimes called the common law, of the nation or state. The English Constitution included the Magna Carta, the Petition of Right, the Habeas Corpus Act, the Bill of Rights, and some of the statute law parliament, and the numerous principles and maxims of the ancient common law. This unwritten Constitution had been formed and developed over many centuries. 
it was this constitution which the American colonists claim appealed to in their charges against the British government. By doing so, they asserted the, that acts of parliament were unconstitutional. In 1765, long before the Declaration of Independence, James Otis said the Stamp Act was not allowed by the Constitution. In the Declaration of Independence, it said the King had combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws. The term Constitution had been used many times by the colonists before 1776, before there was any written Constitution. This Constitution consisted of the general fundamental law and maxims which have anciently existed in England and which have been established in America. It is this Constitution the colonists objected to being violated and fought to preserve. If those who had written and endorsed the U.S. Constitution and the original state Constitution had changed this fundamental law, that is, the unwritten Constitution, they would have been hypocrites, since their whole basis for revolt was this fundamental law that was, this fundamental law could not be violated. Judge Cooley expresses this concept as follows. It is true that the colonists in the incipient period planted themselves upon established rights instead of seeking or desiring a revolution. Their purpose, therefore, was to maintain old established principles of the Constitution instead of overturning them. And they occupied a conservative position, resisting innovations which the imperial government was attempting court. In America, only a change in the general sovereignty governmental rule was intended. In respect to the general laws, the revolution was strictly preservative. Now, it is my suggestion that we reference this as the War of Independence was strictly preservative. It was to restore the rights that we were losing. The general law and the unwritten constitution cannot be altered, either by government or even by the people. The people were limited in their act of drafting the constitution, as that constitution cannot violate what must conform to the unwritten constitution, the law of the land. Now let's see if we can look at that last paragraph in a little different light. This general law, the unwritten constitution, cannot be altered either by our government or even by the people. This fundamental law is the law that the rural society is pledged to honor. In the plural society, 
is the one that writes constitutions and ratifies constitutions, then the rural society cannot delegate any power it does not have. If it must conform to the fundamental law, then any constitution it writes or ratifies must conform to the fundamental law. There is a limit to how far the Constitution can go. Therefore, the drafting of the Constitution by the people back in the 1700s was understood to be one in which they would just award limited power, delegated power, because they knew the upper limit. And they were going to keep those and reserve those to the people. So here is a constant a war of independence that is faked to restore the rights and then with the writing of the Constitution to delegate some of those rights to a governmental body in order to solve the failure of the Articles of Confederation. An important principle here in reading, continuing with the reading, an important principle is thus revealed here. That being, that being, when an original law is established in the land, future political events cannot change that law of the land. The freedom fighters that brought American independence did not have the authority to alter, change, or abrogate the law of the land. And neither do the people today by way of amendments or constitutions. And the, the folks that were in the Constitutional Convention knew this. Lawyers were against the law in Virginia. The supreme law of the land is the unwritten Constitution. Excuse me, I skipped a sentence. The people cannot take away fundamental concepts of due process, give courts legislative powers, or allow an inequality for taxation. The supreme law of the land is the unwritten constitution of the land, which controls both constitution and statutes. It thus is possible for a written constitution to be unconstitutional. When the U.S. Constitution says it shall be the supreme law of the land, the words are spoken of in the same way that a statute is said to be the law of the land. In this context, the words mean positive law which prevail in the land. The U.S. Constitution was to give the national government a few specific powers such as to coin money or declare war, and when exercised, these powers were to prevail over to be supreme to any state or municipal laws or constitutions in these areas. This was to avoid conflict and confusion. No written constitution can be the law of the land in its true sense, but must in fact conform to it. The law of the land does cannot be lawfully or rightfully changed by forms of government that are established in the land. In the time of the Bible, when the government changed from a republic 
governed by judges to a monarchy, the law of God continued to be the law of the land. In the American nation, there was first a government under British rule, and then a government under the Continental Congress, which was followed by a government under the Articles of Confederation, after which came the government under the U.S. Constitution. Some states had six or more different constitutions. Through all of these changes in the form of government, the basic law of the land remained the same. In fact, the law dictates the form of government. The law is legally attached to the land and not to some political entity called a state or government or even a constitution. The law of the land is also not altered by the subsequent division of the land of political subdivisions or colonies. The common law established by the white race in America was the law of the land in every part of it since all the land was English and later American. Division of the land into colonies and later states did not have any effect on what constitutes the law of the land or in any of the divisions or colonies. Even if the states became completely separate, completely separate nations, which they never really were, the law of the land is still the predominant factor in determining the legal and religious foundation. Thus, state boundaries can be changed, but as they do, the law of the land stays the same. In England, the law of the land was regarded the same in Wales as it was in London. The land is the controlling factor, not the divisions of the land or prevailing governments. Thus, when the Israelites divided Palestine into different tribal regions and later into different kingdoms, that did not in any way nullify the law of God from being the law of the land. The same race of people that planted the law on that land were still inhabiting that land, and thus the law remained. The nation's law of the land is also said to prevail in those lands which were after which are afterwards taken over by that nation. Thus the American common law also exists in those lands which were later later added to the nation thereby superseding whatever law that may have previously existed there. This means the French law which existed in Louisiana, the Spanish law that existed in Alabama, Arizona, or California, no longer prevail in those lands. The American extended to those lands to the exclusion of the Spanish and French law. Likewise, when King David enlarged the borders of the Israel nation, the law of God became the law of the land in those territories. <clears throat> I want uh, a political coup or a revolution may set aside the law of the land, but it does not really remove it. There is only one way the law of the land can be completely removed in a legal sense. That is by the removal from the land 
of the race of people which established the law on the land. Just as an aside, like moving up the ladder onto the glass. Thus, when Israel was deported in the Assyrian and Babylonian captivity, the peoples were brought into the land. The law of God ceased to be the law of the land in Palestine. The history of the land ultimately dictates the law of the land and its unwritten constitution. A land which has an established history for a given people has an established law of the land. Any law is termed law of the land which was originally established and practiced in the land by ancestors of the people that possessed the land. It is not to include new laws, but old laws, concepts, and principles. As Judge Cooley said, when the law of the land is spoken of, undoubtedly a pre-existing rule of conduct is intended. Is this body of law, along with the additions it received up to the time of national independence, which makes up America's unwritten constitution. This constitution is, this unwritten constitution is the law of the land, and by its nature, immutable and unalterable by any governmental act, just as the colonists claim, colonists claim it to be unchangeable by the British government. In fact, this law is of such a high order that it prevails above any written constitution. Now, that is the end of chapter 2.